You are listening to Bear in Mind, the University of Northern Colorado's official podcast. Join us each episode as we listen to the voices from UNC faculty, staff, students, and alumni as they offer insights of local or national importance. This is your host, Dan and Cox, bringing you just a taste of UNC. Well, uh, Kashmir, if you ask anyone, they will either say uh, it's an Indian part or they will say it's a Pakistani part. So that's uh, something that we need to kind of unpack. Uh, we have to go back to 1947 to look at this region because this region was, uh, it used to be its own kingdom. It was a principality under the British paramountcy. Uh, it was never under direct British rule, but it was uh, it was there, there was a true there was a sort of a, a setup between the local ruler and the British uh, uh, rulers. After hoisting the national flag, the first servant of the Indian people addressed from the ramparts of the Red Fort the half a million gathered below. And uh, uh, in 1947, when India and Pakistan became two nations, this was on the frontiers. Uh, the majority of the population in Kashmir region was Muslim, but the ruler was a Hindu monarch, and he wanted to stay independent, but that was not the logic of partition. He either had to go with India and he had to go with Pakistan. So the history is really contested, like how was he able to, uh, the logic of partition was that a Muslim majority go to Pakistan. They either uh, you know, move there, or uh, the, ge the geographical contiguity also uh, was uh, towards Pakistan as well. So Kashmir would have gone to Pakistan. But it, uh, the Maharaja, the ruler, he ended up uh, uh, going with India, and the accession is contested. And uh, what happened was uh, then there was a war between India and Pakistan in 1947, as a result of which uh, half of it went with Pakistan and half of it went with India, but this was not to be a final solution. There was to be, uh, there was to be a final solution under UN United Nations resolutions for uh, where people would self-determine uh, where who to go with, but that never happened. So now you have a part that is under Indian control and you have a part with it which is under Pakistani control. And on the, uh, in the region where you have the Indian control, you have an armed militancy going, against, uh, going on against the Indian rule since 1989. So that's the current status. That's what probably you're hearing about in the news. A state of Jammu and Kashmir have been put under curfew uh, as we uh, speak. Uh, we are also now being told... Well, there's a fine line. It's called the line of control. The line of control is the line... It was uh, in 1947 when the war was going on and when UN intervened at the request of uh, India's prime minister, uh, they did a ceasefire line. They were like, okay, this part goes to Pakistan and this part is with India for now, but we will decide the future of this region later on. Uh, so this is a ceasefire line. But then uh, the line uh, towards the 19, uh, early 1970s, it became a line of control, which was a truce between, in a way, it was a truce between the two nations saying, it was kind of very um, sublime way of saying that, okay, you have the part that you have and we have the part we have. It's not an international boundary. It's not a boundary at all. It's not a border, but it's a line of control. Or the other name for it is line of actual control. Uh, there is an armed militancy going on in Kashmir, uh, which was fostered and patronized uh, by Pakistan, uh, but it was fostered inside the other side of Kashmir. 
which is called mm-hmm. Azad Kashmir, meaning free Kashmir. Uh, so uh, India and Pakistan both have tightened the security and it's a very, very heavily guarded, heavily surveilled uh, line. So you cannot really travel. Uh, I think in 2013, a grandmother uh, tried to uh, sneak into the other side from Indian to the Pakistani uh, area that's controlled by Pakistan. And it really brought the two countries to the brink of war just because a grandmother wanted to see her grandson or probably a son. We, I don't know the exact details, but a war did break out if a family member wanted to um, see the other family member. It was on the brink of war. And both of them are nuclear uh, powers. Uh, so that's where it stands right now. You On one side, you have half of the family, and on the other side, you have half of the family. And uh, that's what's been going on for the last 70 years. So my research is in Indian administered Kashmir. I feel like administered is an okay word to be used because United State, uh, United Nations use the word uh, to, and it foreshadows the fact that this is a this is a place where there is no uh, there is no political resolution, and the resolution needs to be had from a self determination or a referendum. Uh, so I am from. Uh, Uh, the uh, uh, Indian administered Kashmir, which is also called Indian occupied or Indian held Kashmir. And for the purposes of kind of, uh, you know, just having a semblance of uh, clarity throughout this conversation, I will call it the Kashmir Valley or just Kashmir. But you know that it's the one under Indian, um, uh, Indian, it's Indian held. So my research is based, so since 1989, what happened was that a militancy broke out against the Indian rule. It was a popular militancy where, and it's called the Tehreek. It's not called, uh, it's not, people don't really just refer to it as a militancy, but Tehreek means a movement. So this is a movement, it's a cultural and a popular movement against India. So um, the people are demanding a self-determination according to the United Nations resolutions. People are demanding that the plebiscite be held. Uh, there is a section of people who are also demanding that they want to go with Pakistan, and but major majority of Kashmiris, they want to stay independent and they want to be a sovereign nation. And they are demanding entire unification of what it was before 1947. Of course, that's heavily debated, like what territories are we looking at and what are we not looking at? Uh, that's a separate discussion. But as of now, a majority of Kashmiris do want uh, an independent Kashmir, uh, a faction of it does want to be with Pakistan. And there are a uh, lot of people, I mean, several uh, there's other sections that are pro-India as well, <clears throat> who technically right now hold the power and hold the power for India inside Kashmir. So my research kind of comes, starts uh, from na- 1989 onward. So what do I do? Um, Since 1989, Kashmir is under Armed Forces Special Powers Act, and this act was implemented by India when the militancy, the Tehreek, broke out. And uh, what happened was that you had young Kashmiri boys getting trained in Azad Kashmir and coming back home and doing, uh, you know, actions and activities against the Indian uh, military. And there was a lot of Indian military already in Kashmir, but since 1989, you have more than 600,000 troops and they are ever increasing. And then you have um, also troops on the border, uh, on the, not the border, but the line of control, manning the, bo- uh, manning the frontiers there. So uh, the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, it's also called AFSPA for short. And uh, there's a reason I'm calling it AFSPA because I'll be using it often. 
Uh, what happens under that uh, uh, law is that uh, if a soldier was to kill anyone, a soldier was to maim anyone, and a soldier was to enter any home, there is he doesn't have to be accountable to anyone because the area is under uh, what, what you call as it's disturbed. And the disturbance is that there is a militancy going on. There is the Tehreek and people have, people have picked up arms against India. So 70, more than 70,000 deaths have occurred so far of both combatants and non-combatants and more than 8,000 uh, disappearances that have been affected by the Indian forces have uh, occurred in Kashmir. So my main research is with the disappeared. So I work with an organization called the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons that was founded by a mother. Her name is uh, Parvina Ahangar. Her son was 17 years old and, in, and he was disappeared by the Indian Army. So uh, disappeared has technically become a verb and we know who did the disappearance. It's usually the Indian soldiers. And uh, most of the disappear dis disappearances have occurred in different ways. Some have been they have been taken into custody, never returned back home. Some have been uh, picked up just on the road randomly, uh, you know, for searching, frisking, all kinds of. There are security checkpoints in many places in Kashmir. It's, it's loaded with that kind of a surveillance network. Mm -hmm. And you have police, you have military, you have paramilitaries. And people are stopped every now and then, and these disappearances have occurred then. And also some disappearances are just unexplained that someone left early in the morning for work and never returned. So the, so there, there are more than 8,000 disappearances, close to 10,000 disappearances. And this organization was also co-founded by a human rights lawyer. So the mother, Parveen Ahangar, the human rights lawyer, they got together in 1994, and they um, formed this organization. Uh, and that's what my main research is. I'm finishing my ethnography on that, uh, which t takes a look at this gendered resistance movement that is happening. And it also tries to understand the Kashmir situation politically, tries to kind of look into history as well. And then uh, try to understand, try to understand the nature of the nature of the dispute, but not just through the eyes of India or Pakistan, what major narrative is right now what the international media propagates. But it is an, um, it's really the emphasis is on uh, to understand Kashmir dispute through the eyes of Kashmiris and what they go through, the suffering and the trauma. <laughs>
And then we also talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the, the issues and the wars and the things that we see around and how it affects gender. But uh, I feel like the students leave uh, really uh, with these lenses, uh, these intersectional lenses, trying to look at other cultures and trying to look at gender in other cultures, but also see all these different political layers that have been added to it. So that's one of my favorite classes, and I feel uh, it, it works very well with international relations. It works very well with anthropology. It works, I think it works well as anyone looking for an uh, LAC course as well. And it's part of the gender studies minor. Then the other class that I'm going to be teaching in fall is anthropology of uh, sex and gender. So that's the first time I'm going to be teaching that class, but because I'm also uh, part of the gender studies faculty and I'm also trained in um, anthropology of gender, uh, so that is going to be my, probably my uh, favorite class again. And it brings uh, together all these uh, little skill sets that I have. And uh, that is something, uh, again, uh, anyone can take it. Uh, it's a 300 level class. Um, it's going to talk a lot about anthropology of sex and gender. It's going to, it's going to talk a lot about anthropology of sex and gender. And again, there'll be, uh, we'll also talk about, you know, economic theories. We'll talk about social theories. We'll talk about political theories, but we will always keep uh, sex and gender as our uh, sort of the lens, the main lens. So uh, I feel like those are the two interesting classes that uh, we can, uh, I, I wanna talk about and hope uh, that students come to those classes and uh, enjoy the material with me.